You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. The extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. Those extraordinary circumstances began with President Biden's lawyers finding classified documents in his former office at a Washington think tank on November 2nd, documents that should have been turned over to the National Archives. A second set of classified documents was found in the garage of his Wilmington home on December 20th, and Biden's response was rather glib. And by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. And as late as this Thursday, yet another classified document was found in the library of his home. The initial investigation by the Justice Department has been ongoing since early November, when Attorney General Merrick Garland assigned John Lausch, the U.S. attorney from Chicago, and a Trump appointee. And Lausch determined that further investigation by a special counsel was warranted. So, for the second time in two months... Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate the possible criminal mishandling of classified documents by a president. The document authorizes him to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with this matter. John Hur, the former U.S. attorney for Maryland and also a Trump appointee, is the new special counsel. But White House Press Secretary Karim Jean-Pierre says his investigation will show that no crime was committed. We are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced and the president and his lawyers acted promptly upon discovering of this mistake. My guest is national security expert Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, what does the appointment of a special counsel here tell you about what the U.S. attorney for Chicago found in his investigation? So it's difficult to take too much from it other than to say it appears more than likely there was at least enough evidence to raise concerns for the U.S. Attorney in the Northern District of Illinois regarding how the documents were originally stored in these different locations and the extent to which efforts were never made to ensure that any government records in general and particularly classified records had been returned to the National Archives. That doesn't necessarily mean there is sufficient evidence to charge anyone with a crime, but given the political sensitivities of the issue, 
given that it involves the current president and his staff, given the ongoing special counsel probe into former President Trump, it's not surprising that Attorney General Garland decided to appoint this new special counsel specific to this issue. But this is a criminal investigation, and for criminal charges, there has to be an intentional or a willful act. It's not just accidental mishandling of classified documents, you know, like sloppy housekeeping. So does that say that they're looking at something that was intentional rather than just inadvertent? It's tough to say. It makes me think there might be more to this than just accidental mishandling. I don't know who it would be by. I don't see any necessarily any indication that if there was intentional mishandling or if there was any obstruction that it was done by Mr. Biden as opposed to one of his staffers. We'll have to let the facts play out on that one. But I think this is the Justice Department, and particularly Attorney General Garland, just playing it extremely safe, recognizing the politics of the moment, recognizing that Donald Trump has already filed for third bid for the White House, that President Biden is likely to file for his reelection, and that the nature of the moment requires pulling out all the stops, for lack of a better phrase, to protect the institutional integrity of the Justice Department. Biden always says he takes security seriously, but they've discovered documents in his old office, in his garage, and in the library. And that was just discovered on Thursday. I think it speaks to how even those who we assume are the more careful among us will make mistakes. And that's what needs to be discovered here is, was this a set of mistakes? Was this sloppiness by the staffers who put this together? Or was there something more nefarious? Was there a more deliberate intent by someone to remove these records? to these locations, and was there any effort to conceal that from the government? That's what I think will be the distinguishing point between this simply being an administrative slap on the wrist to somebody as opposed to criminal charges, and that's what got Donald Trump in trouble, was not the original you know, mistake of the relocation of the records, but the obstruction and the concealment of those records. How are classified documents supposed to be handled? Should they even have been in the vice president's office for any length of time? I mean, aren't they supposed to be handled in a special place? So, yeah, so depending on the level of classification, there may be particular locations they're never supposed to be removed from. But let's be clear, while Joe Biden was vice president, these materials would have no doubt been brought in by the relevant security officials as part of briefing materials, as part of information that he needs to review in advance of certain meetings. That happens all the time. The question is, who brought them there and why were they left behind? That can be done, so long as it was in the proper location at the vice president's residence. But the issue of how did it wind up at the think tank is the unresolved question. It should never have gotten there in the first place. That is a problem. That is a breach of security Whether or not there's any criminal liability is what does not appear to be lining up at the moment with respect to President Biden because of the proper actions to return it. This happened November 2nd, so right before the midterms. Should it have been disclosed to the public at that point? There was no legal requirement for anyone to notify the public. Justice Department certainly doesn't comment on ongoing investigations, so they weren't going to tell anybody. The National Archives didn't have any need to at the time because they had already referred things over to the Justice Department. And the White House had no obvious desire to do so, nor were they required to do. And let's remember, the ongoing saga at Mar-a-Lago went on for months and months behind the scenes and no one in the public knew about it because they're not supposed to be talking about that stuff publicly. We didn't know about the extended negotiations back and forth 
to get the initial batch of documents or the grand jury subpoena that was enforced in June. There was a sworn declaration given at the time. We didn't know anything about that until August once there was a finally a search warrant executed. That's when we learned all the details. And so there was no indication for the Justice Department to have publicly acknowledged that this was going on in the days leading up to the 2022 midterms would have been political interference by the DOJ on behalf of the Republicans at that point. Do these incidents show that there needs to be some reckoning about how classified documents are being handled in general? So mishandling, the pure mishandling of classified documents happens, sadly, a lot. The question always from a criminal standpoint and what the Justice Department always considers is, was this accidental or was this something with a measure of intent and or obstruction that would warrant actually pursuing a criminal prosecution? So for most people, the Justice Department is happy to just let the administrative process play out. Security clearance gets revoked, person gets fired, something along those lines. Those aren't options, obviously, with someone like a Donald Trump or Joe Biden because in their roles as constitutional officers, they're exempt from it. Donald Trump is now no longer even working for the federal government as president. He's a private citizen, so there's no administrative step to take. It's either criminal or nothing. But by and large, with very rare exception, the Justice Department does not prosecute accidental mishandling of classified information. They prosecute if you're looking to sell it, if you're looking to actually use it as more forms of espionage, if you deliberately took documents and you're storing them for whatever purpose you want at home, those are reasons they would pursue a criminal prosecution, as well as if you obstructed any effort to recover them. So right now, the job of the special counsel probe to determine if there was any crime committed beyond the breach of security itself. If there's any particular criminal liability for anyone, up to including, obviously, Joe Biden, though, given that he's the current president, it's obviously DOJ policy not to bring an indictment anyways. But were any of the staffers, did anybody commit a crime that needs to be prosecuted at this point? So what possible criminal liability is there? What statutes are involved? So you're going to have some of the same legal provisions that are in play in the Mar-a-Lago saga. You're going to have the Espionage Act provisions concerning the unauthorized retention of national defense information. You're going to have issues of potential obstruction if there were efforts by whether it was Mr. Biden or any of his staffers to conceal or obstruct efforts to recover these various records over the last six or seven years. We have seen no evidence of that yet, but that would be the type of statutory provision that would come into play if evidence along those lines is developed. Does taking this from an in-house Justice Department investigation to a special counsel investigation escalate the inquiry? Special counsel don't always, but often do, bring criminal charges. So what making it into a special counsel changes more than anything, in my view, is it increases the likelihood of transparency, where usually if a U.S. attorney is simply investigating it, if they choose not to bring charges, that's the end of it. There's no public report. There's nothing. They just end the investigation. A lot of times they won't even make much of a comment, if any, to the public about it. With a special counsel, the regulations specifically anticipate that a report outlining the entirety of the investigation will be compiled and presented to the Attorney General. And most likely, Attorney General Garland would make that public for American voters to review and to take into consideration. So, it doesn't change anything, in my view, in terms of the power of the Justice Department to bring charges. It doesn't make it necessarily more likely charges are going to be brought, but it ensures more transparency. Former President Trump, 
who has claimed that he declassified all the records found at his home without providing any proof of that, said on his Truth Social account, quote, when is the FBI going to raid the many homes of Joe Biden, perhaps even the White House? These documents were definitely not declassified. Donald Trump is making another rant like Donald Trump does. It means nothing. Look, if Joe Biden starts obstructing the investigation and submitting false statements to his lawyers and the Justice Department develops evidence that Joe Biden's team is concealing other records with classification markings at other facilities, then they can go to the magistrate and get a search warrant just like they had to do at Mar-a-Lago. But that was an 18-month process, and the Trump team constantly obstructed that inquiry. There's no indication the Biden team has done anything similar, not to mention this idea of are you going to raid the White House? The White House is a government facility authorized to hold those records. And Joe Biden, as the current president, can do whatever he wants with them, just like Donald Trump could do when he was the president. Does this second special counsel investigation complicate the investigation of special counsel Jack Smith, of former President Trump, and the decision by Smith and Garland whether to prosecute? I don't think it necessarily changes their legal calculus. It might alter their political calculus a bit. If you're Jack Smith and you're compiling a potential indictment against the former president, you were already on high alert to make sure your case was tight and your facts were clean. Now you're going to be even more so worried to make sure that there are no gaps in the evidence, that there are no witnesses whose credibility you can't be sure of. You're going to be even more sensitive to that idea because if you choose to bring an indictment and the special counsel into Biden mess does not, there will be obvious political implications. And lest we forget, there are actually three special counsels at the same time. John Durham has been investigating potential misconduct in the Trump-Russia probe for about four years. So these special counsel investigations can take on a life of their own. Thanks so much, Brad. That's Brad Moss of Mark Zaid. Coming up next, the Supreme Court considers the attorney-client privilege in a case with special importance for in-house counsel. You're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Justice Kagan? I'm, I'm wondering if you would just comment on, you know, the ancient legal principle of if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
There was laughter in the courtroom as Justice Elena Kagan suggested there's no need to change the scope of the attorney-client privilege, which protects the confidentiality of communications. The question the justices are deciding is what test should courts use when communications between a lawyer and a client involve both business and legal advice? I mean, we've had the attorney-client privilege for a long time, and until 2014, nobody ever uh, uh, suggested that the test that you're um, proposing is the right one. Everybody instead used the primary purpose test. Should communications be protected only if the primary purpose was to obtain legal advice or also if a significant purpose was to obtain legal advice? It sounds like semantics, and many of the justices seem to agree with Justice Kagan that there's no need to fix what ain't broke. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. To a certain extent, you know, I think we're talking about labels uh, uh, rather than analysis. We can't really say tie goes to the runner, right, when the burden is on the person invoking the privilege. We can't get into this whole put a percentage on it for the reasons that we've already talked about. So maybe it's best to say nothing. Joining me is M.C. Sangaila, head of the appellate practice at Buckalter. This case involves a grand jury subpoena in connection with a criminal tax investigation. And the law firm and the client invoked the attorney-client privilege to withhold documents. And the case is shrouded in mystery in a lot of ways. The petitioner isn't even named. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, there's the mystery having to do with the parties and the fact that things are under seal and, you know, which law firms involved and which companies involved. I think there was some reference in the government's brief that the company involved with the privileges involved in the cryptocurrency or something like that. But, yeah, there's a little bit of mystery as to the individual participants. But the larger issue is not a mystery, and it's definitely one that is of interest, I would say, particularly to in-house counsel who often are in the position where their communications could be seen as dual purpose. So the question here is, what is the task to apply to communications that have both a legal purpose and a business purpose? And is the test the single primary purpose is legal and therefore it's subject to attorney-client privilege? Or is it sufficient that a significant purpose is enough? So that's the question, I think, particularly given that there are so many circumstances, especially when you're talking about in-house counsel in companies, they're often asked business strategy questions and legal strategy questions that are really intermixed. And so they're paying a lot of attention to this case. So, MC, you filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Federation of Defense and Corporate Counsel supporting a broad application of the privilege. Is the concern that a narrower test might chill a client's communications with their attorney? Yeah. I mean, you want people to be forthcoming so that you can give the best legal advice. You also, in the course of providing legal advice, sometimes need to get a lot of other peripheral information. So one of the examples that came up in the argument was, well, if you're asking for advice about property or the family home or something like that, and you need to get some valuation information or factual information about the property in order to offer legal advice about it, 
you want as much information as possible and you want it as broad as possible in, in doing that so you can get the full information you need to offer the best advice and also can ask a lot of different factual questions that you need to render that advice. And sometimes too, clients don't know. They, they think there might be a legal issue, but they don't know. And they think they're asking a business question, but it's really also a legal question. So if you had this test of a single primary purpose being seeking legal advice, they might say as the client, well, we didn't really know at the time we were asking questions that it was actually legal advice that we really should be asking about. On the other side, the government argues that having that kind of a broad test would allow companies to shield documents about accounting and business development without a compelling justification. And in this case, the government says the vast majority of the documents in dispute are communications between the client and a non-lawyer accountant that was employed by the law firm to prepare tax returns. So the government says that the broader test, the significant purpose, is too broad. It's really interesting. There was a lot of back and forth about what each side's position was, whether there really was some you know, significant disagreement by the parties about what the test should, in fact, be. At one point, Justice Gorsuch said, oh, well, I think both of you might be adjusting your definition of the test and might actually be coming to the same test, which is not primary purpose, but a significant purpose. And, you know, the government demurred at one point said, no, that, that's not exactly what we're saying. But it did start to sound like it, that there were moving goalposts from what you described as, you know, the government's position It seemed to be moving a little bit during argument. But they did state that concern that, I guess, the improper invocation of the privilege or an effort to have everything covered by the privilege when it really shouldn't be. And they also talked about the specifics of this case. And so I think there's really two things at play here. One is the overall test, which would apply well beyond this case. And that's, of course, at the Supreme Court level, what the justices always remind everyone of, and they did at argument, which was, yeah, yeah, we're very interested in how this comes out in a particular case. But we're most interested in what's the test and why we should adopt a certain test, because that's a test that's going to be applied you know, across multiple cases. So we want to make sure it's workable. It seems pretty clear that the government was on one side and all the amicus briefs were on the opposite side. From our perspective, from the perspective of the bar associations and the business organizations that filed amicus briefs in the case, or 13 of those briefs, you know, all of those amicus are aligned in, in having a concern about the test that the government is advocating for, a, a single primary purpose test, because we want a practical, workable test that gives us some sense in advance of what would be subject to the privilege and something that in retrospect also is more workable in terms of analyzing whether the privilege attaches and something that also just reflects the practical realities of how legal advice is given, the circumstances under which it's given, and just how things operate in the real world. And, you know, frankly, it's really nice to be on the Supreme Court and to be in the position they're in they don't have to deal with those realities. So, you know, we hope that the amicus brief will help illuminate the practicalities of that well, and how the test will be applied. So it seems to be semantics. The word significant and primary, it doesn't seem like there's that much difference between those. Yeah, and that was some of the question, too, was how do you define these terms? So assuming we adopt a significant purpose test, counsel, what does that mean to you? If we were to define it, we don't have to, but if we were, 
what would we say? And some of those answers seem to really dovetail between the government and counsel seeking a broader privilege. So you say, hmm, ultimately, as Justice Gorsuch pointed out, I wonder how much light there really is between the the standards as applied that each side's arguing for. So it really was kind of interesting, and it did have you maybe scratching your head a little bit after argument, but maybe Justice Gorsuch had something. There really isn't a significant, you know, divide. So where do you think they'll come out? I mean, if you're just listening to the arguments and assuming that folks are going to kind of stick to their guns and where they seem to be leaning during argument, I would say Justice Gorsuch, Justice Roberts, and Justice Kavanaugh seemed, you know, more predisposed to the argument for a significant purpose test and something that gave more protection. The rest of the court had various degrees of concern or consternation about a test that was something different from the primary purpose test. So, yeah, it's looking like not great for the for the in-house counsel. Is it possible to come out with a test that's really clear in this area? Is it possible that they come back and they don't have a clear test? Yeah, I mean that was one of the that was one of the things I thought that Justice Barrett kind of floated at, at one point during argument, which was, well, if we can't really reach some kind of consensus on the court itself about how do we define a test and and giving guidance about how to apply it. One suggestion she made was, well, if we just basically say we adopt test X and then let it work out afterwards through the court system, that might be one way. Because I think she was reacting to the fact that they probably weren't going to get certain people, you know, on the court to agree to a particular outcome. So she was maybe testing the waters. Or what if we just said something very broad about which test we adopt? And that would be fine. And I think you know, the suggestion was if we adopt the primary purpose test, then we wouldn't need to flesh it out too much because there are state cases that interpret that and everybody could look to those sort of pre-existing law interpreting those cases. But in response to that, Justice Kavanaugh pointed out, well, but they say they apply some tests, but they don't, they really seem to apply another one. So how clear is that? Not very clear. So not very clear. <laughs> just explain how this decision then could impact not only in-house counsel but outside lawyers. Yeah, it was one of the suggestions by um, the government at argument, and one that I've seen in you know previous advice letters or things like that from from very well-regarded law firms to their clients about how do we deal with this if it is more of a primary purpose type test. How do we proceed? And it was similar to how the government suggested, well, you have one email or one memo that's focused on legal analysis, and you have another memo or email that's focused on the business part, and you keep them separate so that there's, you know, none of this kind of questioning having to parse between dual dual purposes, really. Um, you would really solve it by keeping the legal completely separate. And uh, when I heard that and also had seen that advice previously, I just, I just thought, well, that just reveals how unworkable it is if you're focused on this, you know, primary purpose question, because I think in reality, it's just not practical. Oh, everybody stop the email chain we're on where we're debating with the executives and other people in, in the, the group about 
mix the business and legal things, shall we say. And we're going to have the, the lawyer is going to pull out some separate email saying, no, everybody, we need to have some separate email chain that's only about the legal advice. It's just, it's counterintuitive and it really separates out um, that legal advice from the, um, from the business concerns of the client and also from the um, property question that came up at oral arguments, even for folks who aren't big companies, who, who are client, individuals as clients, this question of how much information you're giving that may seem peripheral to the direct legal question, but actually are important for the lawyer to know about in order to give the best legal advice, you, you might be a little more concerned, like, I don't want to go afield of, you know, the things that would be purely legal advice, because then I'm getting into this, you know, swampy area. I'm not sure whether things are actually protected by the attorney-client privilege or not. So those are um, those are things we don't really like to see. We want more open communication and transparency between client and attorney in order to have the best compliance, in order to understand the, the legal risk to the utmost. And um, it's hard to be proactive when you have a test that's unclear. It seems like there wouldn't be five votes to change the test. Didn't sound like it to me an argument. <laughs> so you lose. It didn't. It didn't sound like an argument. I mean, it might be afterwards. What I'm thinking is there may be some working out of things afterwards that people kind of say, okay. If you actually have to write out what this test means and how it would apply, maybe you'd have some some second thoughts about how that is applied. And if it turns out that you end up having some kind of primary purpose test that ultimately really in practice ends up being something that looks much more like a significant purpose test, then maybe you don't lose. So I think it really, in this case, it will turn on the details and where the court goes in terms of how how much it's going to go beyond just announcing some general standards. Is it going to break it down a little bit more? It may turn out that the test may be in name be different, but actually in application, it might not be. I think that's really kind of the best reading of the tea leaves for the 13 amicus of which my client is one um, before the court in the case. But you never know for sure. Thanks so much, MC. That's MC Sangaila of Buckalter. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Dozens of President Biden's judicial nominees, some of whom waited a year or more for a confirmation vote, 
We're in a sort of limbo when the 117th Congress came to an end in December. Now Biden has resubmitted 25 of those nominees to the Senate, including lawyers for the ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, and Center for Reproductive Rights, who previously deadlocked in the Senate Judiciary Committee. The 118th Congress should be an easier one for Biden's judicial nominations as the Democrats enjoy a newly boosted majority. Joining me is an expert in the judiciary, Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Dozens of Biden judicial nominees were returned to the White House. Explain why. Well, that's automatic because the 117th Congress ended. And so you cannot carry people over into the new Congress. So they need to be renominated if they did not have a confirmation vote. That's what happened. They came back to the White House, to the president. About half of them were renominated. And as I understand it, during January, the others who were not renominated will be. There's a lot of paperwork and updating that has to be done. And we're just coming off the holidays. And so I think that explains why they're going to gradually send all of the nominees who are willing to be renominated by the end of the month when the Senate comes back. They actually came in for ceremonial duties and swore in the new senators, but then left until the 23rd when they'll return and then start in earnest their working. So let's talk about some of the nominees who've been resubmitted. The ones that I saw seem to be candidates who are very progressive. So for the 11th Circuit, Nancy Abudu of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So tell us a little about her and what happened to her nomination in the first place. Well, she received very rigorous questioning from the GOP senators on the committee, especially about her work at the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has been at the center of some controversy. But she responded to those criticisms by saying, I was working on helping people who cannot afford legal representation in the civil rights and criminal defense areas, and said, I didn't run that center, which has called the Alliance Defending Freedom a hate group. And she received specific questions about that from Hawley and I think Cruz, but answered, I think, in a straightforward way. She had a tie vote in committee, 11 to 11. And I do not believe the Democrats tried to discharge her from committee, which they might have been able to do on the floor. But she's now renominated. And I think with the 5149 Senate, she will be confirmed. It's just a matter of when. And she, like uh, everyone else, who was renominated, the people who had committee votes, as I understand it, may have to have another committee vote, but that will be easy because the Democrats will now have a majority on the committee, so there won't be tie votes. And the Democrats and Republicans, to some extent, especially on the committee, have voted pretty much in lockstep. There have been very few departures on the Republican side, except for Lindsey Graham, the former chair of the committee, who I think believes that the president is entitled to his nominees unless Graham thinks that someone is too far out of the uh, mainstream. Will they have to have hearings again, or they could just be voted out of the committee without a hearing? No, that's a good question. They will not have to have hearings again. 
they still would, I think, have another committee vote. But that's pretty perfunctory at this point, especially for people who already went through committee on a majority vote when there were 11 senators from each party. So it will just be at the first or second executive business meeting when they have the votes on Thursdays. The Republicans may hold them over a week, but then there'll be a vote for many, many dozens of nominees on the second Thursday after they return. Another nominee who's going to be resubmitted, this is for the First Circuit, Julie Reichelman, and she represented the Mississippi Abortion Clinic in the case that overturned Roe. So there's a reason why she didn't get out of committee. Yes, because abortion has been forefront in the minds of many senators and many people around the country, Republicans consider her to be controversial because she has litigated a number of very important cases involving reproductive freedom, but she has certainly known her way around the federal courts all the way to the Supreme Court and has served in capacity as a lawyer in the appeals courts around the country litigating that issue and many other issues. And so she's very experienced. She said, I will apply the law and the facts in every case, and I am cognizant of Dobbs and will uphold Dobbs because that's the Supreme Court uh, law of the land. She answered that way on many occasions when questioned about whether she would follow precedent. A nominee to the Southern District is Dale Ho of the ACLU. Did he ever get a hearing? Yes, he had a hearing, and Republicans were concerned about his criticisms of some politicians, including some members of the committee, in his capacity as an advocate. And so they were questioning him about whether he could leave behind those concerns that the senators had and be a fair-minded judge. And he had done some, I think, tweeting and made some statements uh, on YouTube and various settings that concern the senators because he has been a strong advocate in context, especially involving immigration and civil rights for the ACLU for a number of years. Even though the committee was split on these, why didn't Chuck Schumer bring it to the floor? Well, I think uh, for some of them whom we've been talking about, especially after the election and then the second election in Georgia where Senator Warnock won the runoff, there wasn't a real big reason to bring them up because Democrats have a majority and a better majority than they had in the 117th Congress now. And so there was no reason to press forward and risk a loss on the floor. I think now the people who need discharge petitions, if there are any, and I think there are not going to be any given the composition of the new Judiciary Committee with a Democratic majority, there just would be no reason to force them through and make Republicans mad and force Democrats to take a vote that they might not want to take. It just wasn't necessary. They may have to wait a couple of months, but that seemed to be a preferable approach. Why, you know, force an issue that you know you can win in a new Congress? And I think that was the thinking by Schumer and other leaders on the Democratic side. I mean, is there any way that that, that having an extra committee member is going to speed up the committee even more when Durbin, he's following the same path that other 
Judiciary Committee chairman have followed before him? Well, yes, I think that it will speed up the process, especially for people who might be more controversial and at least before received high votes. But now with the at least 1110 or maybe 1210 of the Judiciary Committee, they will easily go through committee. Hopefully the hearings won't be as controversial as some have been. And it also depends partly on who the particular nominee is. But I think it will go more smoothly from a Democratic perspective. I think the other question you're asking, and some progressive groups have asked as well, is are all those vacancies going to be filled in the next two years? And there are many, 72 at the district level and 10 at the appellate level, and then 25 or so uh, future vacancies. And as judges continue to take senior status or retire or die, there are going to be additional vacancies, and everyone wants to see all of those vacancies filled, and it just takes time. I was surprised to see that the Senate you know, left after one day of purely uh, introductory work for a couple of weeks. They went home for a state work period until the 23rd. You know, after that, we'll have President's Day, um, which will take another week. And so the calendar moves on. So the solution to that, which some have proposed, is either to have more nominees in specific hearings or to have them more often than one every two weeks, which is, I think, the precedent you were referring to. Referring to, I believe the Republicans under Trump uh, rarely had uh, hearings more often than once every two weeks. And that's what Durbin has done systematically, but he has not scheduled them more often than that. And so some progressive groups are urging that. Or the other alternative is to have more nominees in specific hearings. Durbin usually has had one or two appellate nominees and then three or four district nominees. And of course, if you have more nominees in each hearing, you can move more people through. But that limits the time for questioning. And so I think he's trying to be as fair as he can and not unduly change a number of the traditions of the Senate. Carl, are any of the circuits likely to be flipped in the next year or so? Perhaps. But there's an interesting question that you raised. Most of the appellate vacancies that the president filled, and there were 28 of them, which is a substantial number, those nominees were mostly replacing appointees of Democratic presidents. And that's one measure that people use, which is is relatively crude, but it's used by many observers of the federal courts. And so that creates a bit of a problem because you can't flip the circuit, as you're suggesting, when you're only replacing Democratic appointees. And so there are some vacancies now uh, that uh, are held by appointees of Republican presidents, and so those will make some difference, for example, in the Third Circuit. But I think that there are not very many appeals courts which will flip in the next two years, unless you have more GOP-appointed judges at the appellate level decide to take senior status or resign. We haven't seen very many of them, but some have. And that's not a rule. That's just a custom or tradition. 
And I think many Democratic uh, and Republican appointees don't honor that or honor it in the breach and will take uh, senior status or retire when they want to. And some don't have much choice. I mean, maybe they have a health issue or something of that sort. And so it really is specific to each judge. But so far, the pattern is, at least in the Biden years, has been more Democratic appointees have assumed senior status than Republicans. And I think it's something like three out of every four. So we'll see if there'll be changes in the next two years. Trump certainly was able to flip some circuits. That's right. And partly because Mitch McConnell didn't allow uh, Obama to fill vacancies in 2015-16 and held them open for Trump. And so that explains how he could appoint 54 new appellate nominees in the four years he was president. And so there were many leftover vacancies because they, the GOP refused to even give hearings to many of Obama's nominees for those vacancies. So what will the agenda look like when the senators return? They'll come in, and as soon as they do, they'll start to move people. They'll finish off, I think, in January, renominating everybody and just keep moving the process. So we'll see how that goes. But I think the Democrats are very much determined to confirm as many people as they can in 2023 and keep moving in 2024. So they're committed to it and have said it all publicly. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.